Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which we used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, good works. God prepared in advance for us to do. Word of the Lord. All right, good morning. How are we doing? Very good. Um, last week, we had our uh, fall retreat, and I'm just going to be honest, I'm just blown away by this community. I'm blown away by the stories that exist in the people in this church, and um, maybe the best way to say it is the people in this church are a deep well. Um, there's a deep, uh, there's a depth and um, an experience in this church. Um, it, as a pastor, uh, it can be quite intimidating because there's so many good stories around. Um, the content of our tr- retreat, and we'll flip through some pictures here, um, the content of our retreat um, was something called a journey of life. And essentially what we wanted to do was we wanted to say, what are the stories in our lives and where has God been interacting um, in our stories? How do our stories sort of begin to weave together? And so what we did is we actually spent time with like a 30,000-foot overview, um, peaks and valleys, if you will, um, sharing our stories, um, writing them, taking the time to write them and present them, but then also um, to like share them with other people, leaving 20, 45 minutes um, for each person to just say, this is my story. And for me, the takeaway from the time was we shouldn't underestimate people. Um, each of us created an image of God is rich with history and stories and strengths and weaknesses and potentials and faults and highs and lows and, um, you know, things we can look at in our life and say, yes, I accomplished that. It was amazing. But also to look at our lives and to say, so much of our life has almost happened to us. And to just see some of those things as um, things to heal from or other things in our life um, as, um, as gifts. And I really believe that God is at work in this church, in the lives of individuals, um, doing powerful things healing um, from the past and from trauma, um, learning to rest and abide in the person uh, of Jesus. And I just want to um, honor that. So let's just keep praying for, for more of that as we dig in. I know I've talked to many of you. I'm coming back from the retreat and being able to do that. So I'm really excited about that. Um, today what I want to do is I want to continue in our Good News Gospel series where we're looking at what is the heart of the Christian faith. And we're looking, um, we said at the very beginning, the gospel has chapters, um, creation, fall, redemption and restoration, and we're really kind of camped out in that um, redemption um, part today. Um, and if you want to go back and, and, and catch up, we're going to be, uh, you can do that on YouTube or podcast, but um, what I want to do today is look at this text that really helps us understand and reorient our relationship to grace. Do we really understand what 
grace is. And so in order to do that, I want to talk today about zombies. Uh, the HBO show uh, The Last of Us, so good, Pedro Pascal, definitely going to talk about that. I want to talk about how we become more passive as people. Yes, I said passive. I want to talk about the greatest gift I ever received. It was cash. Um, and, um, and my niece is here, one of my favorite people in the world. Hi, Maya. I'm really glad that you're here. All right, let's pray. Lord, what a text. What a people. What a time. And we just still ourselves um, so that we might hear your still small voice in our hearts this morning. You are our God and we are your people. I pray right now that grace would um, maybe be a concept we begin to understand today, but even more than that, I pray that it would be um, something we experience richly, that we do so in community, that we don't try to go at it on our own, um, but we really rest this morning. And so, Lord, I pray what we have not, would you give us? What we know not, would you teach us? And what we are not, would you make us? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So our text is um, basically this, who you and I are, who God is, and then what God has done. And since we're jumping into the middle of the book of Ephesians here, let me just give you a high-level overview of the epistle. Paul wrote this around A.D. 60. Um, he wrote it to a church in an ancient Greek city called Ephesus, um, and he was encouraging unity within the church. And uh, the book is really split, um, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. Um, chapters 1 through 3, he's saying, this is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. He says, you're confident. You're saved. You're reconciled to God. And essentially what he's doing is he's saying, he's holding out the identity in front of them. And he's saying, this is your identity. Can you live into this identity? Can you just choose to believe that you are who God says that you are? And it's uh, theological. It's doctrine. It's kind of dense. And then there's this word in chapter 3, therefore. And it's just like a, a big bridge over to the second half. In the last three chapters, Paul is saying, here's the ethics of a Christian life. Here's how you actually live out the morals and the um, behaviors as a follower of Jesus. But it's all grounded in chapters 1 through 3. And you should go read the whole thing. Go sit in one setting. You can read it probably 20, 25 minutes, something like that. Um, but in our passage, Paul eventually gets to the good news. But as Waleed was reading, I'm like, Paul is an intense kind of person. Here's how he begins. He says, as for you, you were dead. You're like, wow, this guy's very, very encouraging, right? In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rulers of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at once, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thought. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So, um, good news today. Um, I, I read that probably 15 times this week, and I, I, I just thought, Paul is so dramatic. Like, it's, it's just not that bad, right? Calm down, my guy. You're dead. You were uh, under the ruler of the kingdom of air, the devil. You're just like, this is a lot, right? And I love that the way he sort of presents it, it almost doesn't feel like an option. He says, this is who you are. You're dead. You were controlled by the world. You were controlled by the ruler of the kingdom of air. And what does he end up saying? You were, by your very nature, deserving of wrath. And uh, the word there, followed, in another translation is walked, right? When you walked in the ways of this world. Um, and that's even too light of a translation. It actually means that you're controlled by something. Like you actually didn't have a choice. 
um, the HBO show The Last of Us, um, so good, adapted from the, the video game. Um, it's set 20 years into a pandemic where a mass fungal infection has turned hosts into zombies. We, where, who's seen it? There we go. Okay. So good. It's so good. That's not a recommendation. I don't know. Watch it if you want to. Um, but the, the collapse of global society has happened be, because of this. And so Pedro Pascal, he has to transport this young woman who might be immune, who might hold the key to the cure. She, he transports her across the United States. And um, the science behind it, I don't know why I was doing this when I was watching the show. I'm like, could this ever happen? You know, could like zombies ever take over the world by this? And the science, ultimately fake, is actually based um, in a fungus called cordyceps, and it can actually infect insects and take, take them over. Um, it raises their body temperature. I don't think it really turns them into zombies or like the living dead. But what happens is they become controlled and powerless. And um, it doesn't happen to humans. I did a lot of research, I promise. Um, but in the show, the infected, um, that's the best word to say it, is that they, they actually become powerless over this. It takes them over. They themselves cease to exist, death, right? And they're sort of alive still, but they're controlled by something outside of it. And I think this is kind of how, when I read the text, it's like, that's what Paul is saying. You were dead, but you were controlled by something. And you're like, well, how can you be dead and you can be controlled by something? And he says, what are you controlled by? You're controlled by the world, right? You just went with whatever the world said was right and better and true. You just, you just sort of fit in with the culture, cultural norm, right? You move through life blindly. Then he says you were controlled by the flesh. Your desires and your feelings began to take over as the preeminent thing for you making decisions. And then he says you were controlled by the ruler of the air or the devil. And um, what Paul is doing is he's saying, I'm mindful that there are spiritual things at work in, in this world that, quite frankly, we just can't describe or understand. And he's saying, this is your spiritual condition. It's like being controlled. Later on in, um, in Romans, he says, um, why, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And he's, he's saying, I'm, it's like I'm controlled. Understand this sort of, um, this idea of sin or the sickness that we have is, and, and, and I think maybe this is just more accessible way to grasp the word, is addiction, right? The sickness that we have to sin is like an addiction. Um, and more specifically, we could say it's like, a, a lot of sin is like an addiction to ourselves. Right, consumed with the me. And one of the things we talked about a couple weeks ago was that Martin Luther, um, the great reformer, came along and said that sin is actually a life turned inwardly on itself. It, it, can't, it can't see the world around because it's so consumed with the self. Or you know in our world that there's an addiction to coping um, and numbing. Um, a couple weeks ago, I went to a training on overdose prevention um, and administering uh, naloxone, which blocks the effects of opioids and prevents overdose. And I don't know if you know this, but um, there was new data that was released last month that showed over 3,000 people died of overdose in New York City last year alone, J just last year, with fentanyl being found in over 80% of those deaths. And so there's a, a way in this world that people are trying to cope and to numb out the hardship because, let's be honest, life is really hard, right? And so we should meet those things with compassion, but we should also, as people, be open to hearing that there's a sort of um, way of coping that we have. It may not be to that extreme, right? But there's a way of saying, um, my life is often inwardly turned on myself. There's a way of numbing and coping and control that I have. And what we find here that Paul is, is, is sort of leading us to understand in these first three verses is that there's actually a hopelessness and a despair that kicks in with sin. That, that's, that's what it ultimately leads to. 
Uh, David writes in Psalm chapter 14, just to encourage you a little bit more here. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there's anyone who understands, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one that does good, not even one. And if I'm honest, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm sort of prone to skipping over this part. Like I'm, I'm a little bit, um, like when I read Ephesians, it's so encouraging. There's so many highlights. There's so many like good um, memor- memorization verses in there. No one memorizes Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, right? It just hurts a little too much. And I think the pervasive consensus of us as humans is it's not that bad, right? I, I'm, I'm not that, we're not that bad, Russell. It's, it's, it's all okay, right? Don't be so intense, my guy. Like, don't be like Paul. It's going to be okay. Life is pretty good. Um, earlier this week, um, my wife was um, cooking. It's soup season. It's good for the soul. It's really good for the budget. I um, get on the soups. And so she's putting carrots in the soup, and she takes this um, carrot. She's, you know, she peels it, and then um, she cuts it lengthwise right down the middle. And immediately, she calls me into the kitchen. She says, Russell, look at this. And right down the center of the, um, the carrot, it looked perfect. And right on the inside, it was rotting. And it looked, um, it looked like tree bark. Like from the inside out, this thing was, was rotting. And I, I think it's sort of something like this. Um, you, you don't, you don't want to eat that, right? It looks appetizing, but if you peel back a few layers, you would say, I'd never eat that. It looks good, but it's bad, right? And I think that's sort of, um, I speak for myself here. This is how I, I like to live my life. It looks pretty good from the outside, but you peel back a few layers and you find mess, right? You find brokenness. You find this thing that we're talking about, right? And we would say, well, you know, you know, like we're all kind of sinful, I guess, you know, but again, it's not that bad. Paul's saying, no, 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 it, it actually is that bad. There is actually something that actually is really bad. But we want to be perceived as competent and compassionate and capable and righteous, right? Like the carrot. We want to look good on the outside, but underneath there's a lot to be exposed. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying it's bad, right? There's evil in the world. And we can sort of approach it this way. And and this is where it actually becomes helpful. Um, You can hear and read the scripture probably two ways. One, I think we should look at it in like a big cosmic sense. And we could say... You and I know that there's something fundamentally broken about our world. Well, this actually helps us understand why. Paul is saying there's actually a diagnosis for the cosmic problem of pain in the world. This is what he's saying. But don't just stay there when you read it. Be open to reading this personally as well to say, is there something about me? Is there a brokenness or something wrong in me that actually um, needs to be, and this is what we'll get to, touched by grace? Um, Fleming Rutledge is an Anglican priest. Um, She actually used to preach regularly around the corner from here, and she wrote a wonderful essay on the problem of evil titled, Something Evil This Way Comes. Um, And in it, I love reading Fleming Rutledge because she's very um, in touch with the brokenness of the world. Like in her writing, she's always talking about these great tragedies and how God meets meets people in the, in the suffering and in their pain. But in this um, writing she has, she quotes a Columbia professor who wrote a book, I think it was mid-90s, um, Andrew Del Banco, um, and, and he wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And here's what he says. He says, our culture is now in crisis because evil remains an inescapable experience for all of us, 
And yet we have lost our symbolic language for describing it. What he's saying is, is I, I know that it's there. I, I feel this sense of pervasive evil and suffering in our world. But, um, and, and I can actually say this with confidence, outside the church, we're losing a language for it, right? Like, ah, Satan, the devil, spiritual, like, no, let's, let's, let's run from this, right? But Paul actually says, what? I, I have a language for it. I actually know what's wrong in the world. And followers of Jesus are, in fact, people living in the reality of the world, right? We're not blindly optimistic, but we're deeply realistic to the fallen human condition, knowing brokenness and selfishness of the human heart. And if we, if we proceed to say, well, Russell, it's, it's actually just not that bad, right? Like, this is just a great city to go to brunch in and have a lot of friends in, and like, life is pretty good, right? Then we actually don't get to make sense of a war unfolding then we don't get to make sense of half of marriage's failings or problems with substance abuse, or we don't get to make sense of the emptiness and brokenness and loneliness that we often feel. But, right, there's a huge but in this, right? But what does Paul do? And I'm giving you a lot of bad news. What does he say? As for you, where are my grammar people at right here? You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest of us, we were by nature deserving of wrath. What do you see? Past tense, right? This is so good. It's past tense, right? Paul is saying, this, this, this was your spiritual condition, right? You used to be like this. This is the spiritual condition of a person who's outside of an identity with Jesus. And then we come to the greatest words in the Bible. But God. Verse 4. This translation extends it, but the, in, the, in the original language, it's just but God. But because of his great love for us, God who's rich in mercy is alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What do these verses say? What, what, what is Paul trying to communicate? He's saying, this is, this is what God's done. It's, it's God's love. It's, it's God's grace that raises us up. It's God who seated us with him. It's God who's shown us his riches and kindness towards us in the Christ Jesus. And, and, and really what we have is the, the profoundest statement of, of our status. He's saying, this is what has happened to you. You were in fact dead, right? You, th th that's, that was your role in this process. You were dead. What is the job description of someone who's dead? Nothing, Right? Like, you, you actually are not bringing much to the process of this salvation thing, right? You can't do anything. You're dead. And this actually, what Paul, Paul is communicating is, is actually the heart of the Christian gospel or the essence of, of Christianity is, is right here. What God has done and what God is doing, not what you and I are doing. And the idea is sort of basic, but do, do you and I describe our Christianity in terms of what God has done and what God is doing? Or do we tend to describe our following of Jesus in terms of the things that we are doing? Even, even good things, even good things. But which one do we describe our following of Jesus in? Right? Christianity doesn't mean um, we've started doing spiritual things and we've stopped doing other things. That, that doesn't make us a Christian, right? 
Christianity doesn't mean um, we understand um, how to read and study our Bible um, and we're a praying people. Christianity doesn't mean that we follow a code of conduct or even that we've made a decision because otherwise we act as though this is something that we are attaining. But Paul is like, okay, here, let me tell you what it means to follow Jesus. Here's what Jesus has done. These are the things that Jesus is going to do with you. And this is how Jesus is going to change you. You and I attain, we're doing nothing in, in the process. We're not, we're not contributing much except our death, right? Here, I love how Eugene Peterson says it in the message. He says, instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. And listen to this, this is so good. He did all this on his own with no help from us. He did all this on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in the highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. He did it all on his own with no help from us. Does that make sense? Does that help? Does that, does that help like the Christian message actually make sense? Like that we're so prone to earning and to striving and to picking ourselves up by our bootstraps and figuring it out. And Paul comes along and says, like, actually, like, God did it. And if, if we're going to... Maybe I should say it this way. With this sort of big idea in mind, if you're questioning, do I think of my following of Jesus in terms of what God has done or the things that I do? Maybe what we could do with the rest of our time is just reorient our relationship with grace. And so let me just say three things about grace, and we'll wrap up. Verse 8 just says it so simply, for it is by grace you have been saved. I think what we ultimately need is a deeper understanding of grace. I was, um, I was praying this morning on my walk and, and um, on my walk here, and I was thinking about um, grace has sort of always been this elusive concept. I like, think I know how to like define it, describe it, and then it hit me that grace is often hard to describe, but it's something that you actually just experience, something that maybe you, you have a, a feel it. And um, Eugene Peterson um, he had this, I'm going to borrow from him this morning. He had this really great phrase about what grace is. He says that grace is an acquired passivity. An acquired passivity. And I know um, there's not many passive people in this room. Like, I, I know this church, like, there's doers and grinders and achievers in here. So I really want you, um, I want you to hear what Eugene Peterson says here. It's a little bit long, so hang with me. I'll read slow. Life in Christ involves practicing a kind of acquired passivity. The word passivity carries a bad odor in the American language. Insipid, spineless, no good, lazy, lacking gumption, couch potato, good for nothing. We're brought up to admire and imitate the get up and go, the hustle, the drive, the take no prisoners strategy. Where are my type A's at? Thank you. Let's just be honest. Energy and ambition, single-minded purposeness, an undistracted and unswerving race for the finish, an eye-on-the-ball concentration go a long way in making money and acquiring academic degrees, winning wars, climbing Mount Everest, hitting home runs. This is indisputable, but such goals, all of them, much lauded by our culture, have very little to do with themselves with living a mature life, living to the praise of his glory. Competition, ambition, and the accompanying disciplines that bring about its achievement can be pursued, and more often than not are pursued without conscience, without love, without compassion, without humility, without generosity, without righteousness, without holiness. 
When we observe people like this, we realize how radically different they are from the life of Jesus and the resurrection life of Jesus that Paul uses in his text as a living a Why is grace so hard? Because actually we're learning to relax. We're learning to be more passive. We're trying to not strive for something which we're so prone to doing, but one of the greatest enemies of the gospel is our relationship with earning. I earn this. I deserve this. I got this. And if I'm honest this morning, I'm doing too much. I'm going too fast. I'm not present. My focus is off and I'm striving and acting like it all actually depends on me. I'm dancing as well. But what is the point of the passage? I think what happens over time is um, we strive and grind and earn in our career. We strive and grind and earn at school, right? There's some degrees in this room. We stack those up. And what surely happens over time is it slowly creeps into the spiritual life. And so we, we, we bring that into our relationship with Jesus. But the thing that you need to hear today is God loves people because of who God is, not because of who we are. God loves people because of who God is, not because of who we are. And if we're prone to earning and achieving and um, getting by on our own, then the real work of the spiritual life is actually learning to become recipients of grace, right? So this is my second point here is that um, grace is an acquired passivity, but the next one is this, is learning to let grace be a simple gift, a, a simple gift. What does he say? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Do you know how to receive a gift? Um, the greatest gift I ever received um, was $12,000. Um, it was given to me. I just checked my bank account. Um, it was still there. The, the money's not there. It's gone. It's way gone. Um, but it was given to me on uh, January 20th, 2012. Um, I, checked, uh, I checked back, um, and it didn't have the timestamp on it, but I remember receiving a phone call. It was from my mom. And she said, check your bank account. And I opened it, and there was like quadruple the money that was in there. And so I was like, let's go. I was like, what's, what's going on? Um, and she said, I want you to have this. And I said, for what? And she said, that's up to you. And, uh, you know, Sally Mae was coming after me at the time. Um, and so I, like, owed her some money. And so I was like, I, it, like, is this for my student loans? And she was like, it's up to you. And um, I think I even asked her when I was on the phone. I was like, could I buy a motorcycle? And essentially, I was saying, like, you know, are there any stipulations with this money? And um, she responded something like this. I wouldn't do that, but it's your money. And um, it was amazing. And the thing about my mom in that time is, like, she was renting. She could have easily used that money, um, back then at least, um, you know, to put a down payment on a house. Um, she could have kept it, right? But she decided to give it to me. And I did, it, was, it felt so terrible, but I did pay off mo most of it. I just put towards my loans, um, which I kind of wish I wouldn't have. You know, I wish I would have got the motorcycle. Get the motorcycle next time, people. <laughs> Do you and I know how to receive gifts? Like, just, like to just accept something and like, be, not because we're worthy, not because like we've, we've, we've earned it or deserve it, but to just, to just accept it. I think that some of us, what we actually need to hear this morning is that um, we have an unworthiness about us, and so we actually don't know how to receive gifts. We actually um, reject them because we say, no, 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 I'm not worthy of that gift. 
Or a lot of us, we would say, oh, you don't have to do that. And then you receive the gift, and then you say, now I have to return the favor, right? But then it ceases to be a gift because you made it a reciprocal thing. Why did my mom give me that gift? She did it because she loves me. She felt as though she had enough and wanted to share it with me in a specific season of, her, of my life. And the, the way to appreciate that grace was to take it and to say thank you, right? Can you accept gifts? And then here's the last one. Paul doesn't stop with just taking. He actually says, do something with it. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. And so grace should be the gift that you receive, accept, and not out of obligation or fear or anything like that, but you can say, I get to actually dispense hope and grace to other people because my cup is full. My cup is overflowing. It's like, um, it's like the Christmas gift that like, your niece gets at Christmas that everyone ends up playing with, right? Like It's usually just like an, a, a $10 remote control helicopter or something like that that everyone's like, that's the best thing. It's the gift that you get that you say, this is the greatest thing. Let me share it with you. And so what happens in this passage is that you and I are dead, and this grace thing comes and finds us, right? It's not something we earn. It's not something that we deserve, but it's actually something that we just humbly receive. And as we receive that, we, it, we accept it. We say, Jesus, I understand what you've done. I, just, I, just, I take that as a free gift. And I just want that to be good for other people. Can I take it and give to other people? So on each of these, I skipped over them. I want to come back to them right now. Um, Grace as an acquired passivity. Here's a question for you. What am I trying to earn? This is a really good um, career question. This is a really good question to ask in a stage of life where you're thinking about the future. But what are you trying to earn? And maybe there's a... Maybe there's a rest that actually needs to come your way, um, a passivity that needs to come your way. Grace is a simple gift. Are you the type of person that can just say thank you in gratitude? Can you accept the gift without reciprocity, without feeling unworthy? And then the last one is this. Who needs to receive a gift through you? I think that's the beauty of following Jesus is that there, there comes a freedom about us, a, Um, a lightheartedness about ourselves where we can say, I didn't earn this, I didn't deserve it, and so I can hand it out freely. One of the most beautiful ways to respond to this good news is through partaking of communion. Um, We we do that every week as a reminder of what Jesus has done, uh, did 2,000 years ago through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Um, And the passage that we use almost every week comes from Luke chapter 22, verse 19. It says this, And he took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's hard to see there, um, but that phrase, give thanks, um, in the Greek, um, it's two words combined. It's eucharisto. Um, the word charis is right in the middle, which um, in, in the Greek, um, it's grace. And that prefix makes the phrase, it's actually a phrase. It's where we get the word eucharist from or communion. And um, the word is, thanks for grace. That's, that's all that gave thanks means right there. Grace. Thanks for grace. 
And so I'm going to pray, and uh, this is what we do. We get to every week say, thanks for grace. We take the cup, um, it's juice, um, to remember Jesus' blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We take the bread, it's Jesus' body broken for us. Um, and anyone who believes that is uh, welcome um, to partake. If that's not you today, um, this is a really good time. We've left you with a bunch of questions to um, consider your spiritual journey. Um, but if you're a follower of Jesus, take this time um, to reflect on that through the communion meal. So let me pray. The servers will come up. Um, why don't we stand together? I'll pray. And then um, come receive the elements. They're, they're double-stacked. And then take them back to your seats so we can partake of them together. Lord, I love you. And I thank you for this passage where, where we find that our, um, our condition isn't so good. That there's a real brokenness. There's sin all around us and we're trying to make sense of it. Um, trying to make sense of our world. Trying to make sense of ourselves a lot of times. And, um, just thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace. So guilty of underestimating how good you are and how kind you are that you meet us in these low moments. So I just pray, God, that as we take this communion today, as we take the, the bread and as we take the cup, that we would really just take that in as an embodied reminder that you loved us when we were dead in our transgressions. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it, but you did it anyway. What good news that we have. So, Jesus, meet us here in this moment. Pray. Amen.